There's a sweet story about an elder woman uh, who would visit her local postal office every day. And on one day when she stopped in, the office was packed full of people. The line was to the door. Noticing that she only needed stamps, one person in line asked, why don't you use a stamp machine right outside? You can get all the stamps you need and you won't have to stand in line. But the sweet elderly woman replied, I know, but the machine can't ask me about my arthritis. And with that, she's pointing to something I can't help but notice has been happening throughout the years in that we are living in an increasingly isolated society where with the growth of technology, people are more distant from one another now more than ever before. How many people are more comfortable with texting than calling each other? Or how even with pre-COVID times, uh, many relationships that are formed on social media are replacing the ones that are formed face-to-face. And with the ability to carry a little computer with us, everywhere we go on a smartphone, people are working nonstop and spending less quality time together. We're living in a time where people, even within their own homes, are becoming more uncomfortable with human contact. Now look, I'm not one of these people who's anti-technology. I like my iPhone and computer very much. And as crazy as social media can be at times, it's kept me connected with friends and family literally around the world. That's a great thing. But we can also, or can we also acknowledge that as things have advanced, we have increasingly gone away from intentionally connecting with others. Then came COVID, which has been building, which has made building and sustaining relationships even more challenging. Science journalist Lydia Denworth said in the Washington Post that there's been a tightening of our social circles. The pandemic is causing stress and strain to every relationship. Have we all experienced this to some degree? We've wondered who we can get together with who's not compromised, either because of where they work or who they're in contact with, or because of their own health risk and vulnerabilities to disease, like elderly parents who we don't want to get sick. At times, we've probably questioned if we should get together with those who, at least in our eyes, are overcautious or not cautious at all. And as get-togethers are canceled or not scheduled at all, family members and friends have not spoken to each other for weeks, if not months, furious over their disagreements. Some people are feeling ignored, ostracized, or targeted for their views, and alone. Now, what tends to happen when we deal with enough frustration in any given area is that more often than not, we tend to avoid it altogether. And fed up, we start withdrawing from the people we care about the most. That becomes especially more tempting to do in a time of social distancing. Look, my point is not to challenge how you connect with people, but to ask, be it Zoom or in person, Are you connecting with people, especially brothers and sisters in Christ? Who is holding you up in the faith as you experience the most challenging time in your life? And who are you encouraging in theirs? Worshiping one hour on Sunday just isn't enough to do that. See, here at The Crossing, we believe that God never intended life to be lived alone. We were created for community, and therefore we never truly reach our full potential in Christ without one another. But rather, true change happens when we're living life together in a community where we grow closer to Jesus by growing closer to each other, 
a grace-filled gathering that accepts us where we are and yet is not content with us staying there. And where through prayer, God's word, mutual support, honesty, and accountability, we are moved to be all that Christ intends us to be. We believe this happens best in life groups. And so over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at the four commitments that God uses within a group to radically change us, to advance his kingdom both in our lives and in the world around us. And the first of these commitments is a commitment to grow. In the passage that Pastor Tim read for us earlier, Jesus starts essentially the first life group where he gathers a group of men that he's committed to pouring himself into. And if there's one common thread we see through each of these initial encounters, it's the invitation to come and see or come and know Jesus for yourself. Psalm 34, eight puts it this way, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, come and experience what Jesus is all about. Because to come and see invites all who are willing into a relationship with Jesus where they will never be the same. And so the first thing to notice is that it's an invitation to be changed. See, Jesus, seeing Jesus walk by one day, John the Baptist moved in his spirit, testifies that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And two disciples that are standing right next to him, having heard John preach so often about the Messiah who would come and save his people, instantly made the connection. And right there and then, left John to follow Jesus. I love Jesus' reaction to seeing that they were following him. There's no small talk back and forth here. He cuts right to the chase instead in verse 38 and says, what do you want? Why, why are you following me? Or probably more subtly, what are you seeking? Now look, Jesus knew what they were really after. It was common for people of that day to literally follow or walk behind their favorite rabbi as their way of saying, I want to be your disciple. I am completely committed to following you now. But Jesus does here, does uh, what he does often here is, is ask a question to have people he's talking to examine their hearts. It's a probing question that's really searching for a deeper answer than what it looks like on the surface. In other words, there's a, a question behind the question. Like when the blind beggar approaches him on the road to Jericho, begging Jesus to have mercy on him. And Jesus asks in Luke 8, 18, 41, what do you want me to do? It's obvious what this blind man wants. He wants to see. But the real question Jesus is asking is, why? Why do you want to get better? Likewise, he's asking the disciples, why do you want to follow me? What's in it for you? What are you after? It's a question meant to test the integrity of their motives and yet provides an opportunity for them to rise to the occasion. You see, through this question, Jesus is trying to draw out a deeper devotion to him and asking him to step across the line of pure speculation into serious inquiry. Jesus wanted to know if following him would be what they really want to do, because it's not an easy road. There's sacrifices involved, and he wants to know how far they're willing to go. I remember when I was uh, asking my future father-in-law if I could marry his daughter, Holly. And of course, I'm a nervous wreck at this time with all these thoughts whirling through my mind, just hoping I don't make a complete fool of myself. But to this day, I still remember his list of questions boiling down to this. Will you do everything in your power to love and take care of my daughter? 
And in different ways, he just kept pressing that question in to the point where I remember thinking to myself, to myself, that is, uh, what's the matter with him? Of course, I'm going to cherish her. But he knew what I was too young to see in that moment, that life is complicated, filled with joy, but also sorrow, laughter, yet also grief. And marriage is hard. And he, he wanted to know if, as challenges come, would I make the sacrifices in those moments that love requires? In the same way, Jesus invites us into a relationship with him where we will never be the same. The invitation is free. We don't have to earn it, but it's a high calling. And the question is, are we willing to make the sacrifices that love requires? Are we willing to embrace all the responsibilities that this relationship entails? We come to God by faith alone, but he saves us with a purpose in mind to make us holy like him. God is calling us to a new life that is lived by different standards and values than the life we lived before. See, that's what Jesus intended when he renamed Simon Peter. You see, names were important in the Jewish culture because it told you something about the person's character or what their parents hoped their child would grow up to be. And we see several times throughout the Old Testament where God would change a person's name to mark a special calling in that person's life and how he had set them apart for a new purpose. One example of that is Abram's, whose name was changed to Abraham, which means father of all, right before he had his long-awaited son, Isaac. Similarly, Jesus said to Simon in verse 42, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Typhus which when translated is Peter. Jesus knows how reckless, impulsive, and unreliable Peter is at this point. You know, Peter's like the person um, in our lives that we're never quite sure what he's going to say or do that's a little out there. He kind of puts us on edge. He's unpredictable. He's like a firecracker. But Jesus knows this. He's aware of the three-year journey he's about to take with this man where Peter would constantly put his foot in his mouth, test Jesus' patience, and yes, even deny him three times. And yet Jesus is committed to making Peter as firm as a rock. He says of him in Matthew 16, 17 through 18, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the father in heaven. And I tell you that uh, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In just a few years, Jesus takes this very flawed man and uses him to build his church. That's what the gospel is all about where God receives broken people who are humbled by their sin where they're at to change them into the people he always intended for them to be, holy like him. And to accept the invitation, we have to be in cooperation with his sanctifying plan for our lives. Because even at the core of repentance, it's not simply to acknowledge I'm a sinner, but by the grace of God, wanting to turn from my sin to live out God's new purposes for my life. Kyle Alderman in his book, Not a Fan, puts it perfectly when he says, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested, listen, in following Christ. And they want to be close enough to uh, get Jesus, uh, to Jesus get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. But you see, Jesus welcomes all who are willing into a relationship with him with him, where they will never be the same. And accepting an invitation to become Jesus' disciples is accepting an invitation to be changed, but it's also an invitation to seek out the truth. 
Jesus doesn't invite us to blindly believe in him. Each of the men that came to Jesus here had at least basic knowledge of the scriptures. And it was the reference points to which uh, was used to draw them to Jesus. See, when John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God, it was knowing about the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 and the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 that gave these disciples context to know at least vaguely what he's talking about here. And so when they came to Jesus and wanted to know where he was staying that night, they came with questions and they were looking for an opportunity for Jesus to open up the word and show them the connection to how he is, in fact, the promised Messiah. See, they believed, as most Jews did back then, that scripture was the authority of God and therefore the common ground by which Jesus would need to prove himself to them. As Philip's testimony to Nathaniel in verse 45 seems to indicate, he did, he did saying, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. There's a tendency to assume that just because Jesus' disciples didn't have the degrees and the status that some of their peers did, that they were naive fishermen and, and tax collectors and outcasts who followed Jesus blindly. But these were well-informed men who, through examining the scriptures, came to a logical conclusion and was through their understanding of it that was the key to unlocking their passion to following Jesus. When Professor Gary Burge was teaching at Wheaton College, he found that though his uh, students were on fire for Christ, their depth of knowledge about scriptures was slim to none. For those who don't know, Wheaton is a Bible college, and, and most of these students came from Christian homes where they attended solid conservative churches regularly. Yet they couldn't answer questions like uh, whether the story of Abraham or Moses came first in the Bible, or whether Barnabas was in the Old or New Testament. They couldn't even name major books of the Bible in order like Exodus, Psalms, Isaiah, Matthew, and Romans. And get this. Most when asked if Paul believed in a bodily resurrection said, no, I think this speaks to a trend in churches today where people are becoming more concerned with experiencing God and feeling that he's near, that they're losing sight of wanting to know him through studying his word as well. Not that one is really in competition with the other. Both are important. We need the encouragement that comes through fellowship and worship and a timely message but if that replaces the time I take to grow in understanding who God is and his will for me in the Bible, then our worship will start to lack substance and just be emotionalism. Christian writer and speaker Gary Thomas was eating dinner with an engaged couple after one of his marriage conferences. And this couple was so excited to get to sit with this marriage expert uh, that they were eager to ask a bunch of questions. But to give himself a chance to actually eat his dinner, he asked uh, the, uh, the, the bride-to-be to explain why she wanted to marry her fiancé. She started describing how she loved the way that he made her laugh and feel confident around other people. Of course, she felt he was handsome, but most of what she said was focused on how he made her feel so special. Then Gary said, uh, you've told me a lot about what he does for you, but tell me, why do you love him for who he is? Stump, she said, I guess I never thought of it like that before. Now, as much as this couple probably really cared about each other, we'd call this puppy love. Any relationship where one person has strong feelings for another that they barely know is at best only scratching the surface of love. 
It's how much you know a person that affects how close you actually are to them. And we serve a God who wants to be known by all who come to him, even by skeptics like Nathaniel, who responds to Philip's testimony about Jesus by saying in verse 46, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel is a smart straight shooter. He's not going to be easily convinced to follow Jesus. He kind of strikes me as one of those guys who's ready to mix it up and get into a debate with anyone who's ready to challenge him. And yet I love Philip, uh, how he uses his wisdom to not jump into a debate, rather to invite Nathaniel to come and see for himself if Jesus truly is who he claims to be. I like how biblical scholar Craig Keener puts it saying, an encounter with Jesus accomplishes more than extended debate ever will. Though Nathaniel came to Jesus or comes to Jesus ready to interrogate, interrogate him and prove that he wasn't who he claimed to be, catching Nathaniel off guard, Jesus gives an evaluation of him when he calls Nathaniel in verse 47, here's a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Jesus acknowledges that Nathaniel is a man of integrity. And if there's anyone who could sniff out a phony Messiah, it'd be him. Because nothing get past a man like that. And Nathaniel was floored by the fact that Jesus, this complete stranger, knows him. That alone seemed enough to, to, to convince Nathaniel that this is a pretty impressive guy. But when Jesus claimed to see him sitting under the fig tree before he even came, now that really pushed him over the top to say that Jesus was the son of God and king of Israel. Now, it's clear as you read the Gospels, uh, they had a vague understanding of what they would say at this time. And it, I'm certain that's the case here. It wasn't until after the resurrection they fully got it. But Nathaniel at least left here this day knowing that Jesus knew him in a way that only God could. And there was something about being known that had a profound impact on him. Uh, during the documentary, The Last Dance, which talked about Michael Jordan's last year uh, with the Chicago Bulls, it showed how Michael Jordan would spend one-on-one -on -one time before every game with a disabled or sick child. It's done so often nowadays that you might think that, you know, that's not as big of a deal. But 20 years ago, that wasn't necessarily the case. And Michael Jordan, outside of Michael Jackson and Oprah, at that time was considered the most iconic person in the world. He was globally renowned. And for someone like him to spend time with those little girls and boys meant the world to them. They, they probably couldn't wrap their mind around that. How could someone like him want to know me? And yet in a more personal way, Jesus left his majestic throne in heaven to become one of us. Imagine the God of the universe so eager to know us and to be known by us that he was willing to give his life by enduring all our infirmities and bearing the rightful punishment for our sins, by dying on the cross in our place. Verse 51 points to a time in Jacob's life when he was on the run from his brother Esau. And at a place called Bethel, God reminded Jacob through a vision of a ladder coming down from heaven that he had not forgotten him, but would fulfill the promise he made to Abraham through him. Jesus, in a sense, has become the ladder in Jacob's vision the gateway between heaven and earth where God has fully made himself known and invites all who are willing into a relationship with him where they will never be the same. And to anyone who doesn't know him, he's extending that offer to you today. 
He's inviting anyone who's searching to come and experience him for yourself. He welcomes skeptics. Bring your questions. His shoulders are broad enough to handle them. He's not intimidated by a thorough search for the truth because he himself says, I am the truth. He welcomes honest assessments of him through his word. And all that he asks as you come is that you come open. Come willing to stretch yourself beyond your comfort zone and give him a chance to reveal himself to you in a personal way. Jesus' invitation to come and see is an invitation to change and to seek out the truth. But when it comes to how to go about this, we as a church believe that growth happens best within godly relationships. Even in this passage, Jesus only approaches one disciple, Philip, directly. All others are brought to him by the testimony of someone else. And again, when Nathaniel challenges Philip's testimony, Philip doesn't just point him in the general direction of where he can find the answer to his question. He doesn't simply point Nathaniel where Jesus is. He goes, get this, with him. And that's an example, whether it's witnessing to someone who doesn't know Christ or trying to encourage someone who does. Come and see can mean, let's take this journey together. If I don't have the answer, let's seek Jesus about this together. The first time I met my stepbrothers, uh, one of which preached last week, Kevin, uh, was when I was nine. And up until that point, I was living alone with my mom. And I remember how it was almost like culture shock when I moved in with them and my dad because I had never lived with other boys before. And as this tall, lanky, uncoordinated kid who never did any sports uh, and wasn't used to the battles that brothers had, they had to whip me into shape. Uh, They taught me how to play basketball. Uh, We'd watch football together. And there were epic WWF uh, matches against each other. And over the next couple years, whether I liked it or not, I became a completely different kid. Being with other people, even from a general standpoint, changes us. Whether it's their point of views, experiences, or gifts, it stretches us to see uh, approaches to life differently. From a spiritual uh, standpoint, how often do we come across a portion of scripture that we just don't understand on our own? Or experiences in life where we can't discern what God is doing right now, or, or what God may want us to do. And we can use the experience of those more mature than us in the faith to help us navigate through those waters or peers who might see things from a different angle than we have thought of at that time or maybe be humbled by God using someone who's younger in the faith to speak his truth into our lives. Do you have those relationships? Now, look, we're not talking about having friends who are Christians, but friendships that draw you closer to Christ relationships that challenge you to think deeper about his word, where you're challenged to pray more fervently and trust that God truly is able to work in your life. Yes, even now. People you look at and they make you want to be more like Jesus. Do you have that here at the crossing, especially during this time of isolation? We believe that a group provides the most natural place for that to happen, where we intentionally seek God's voice, whether it's through his word or prayer together. And we have countless examples, even throughout this past year, of lives who have been changed by this ministry. There are some people who spiritually felt like they were on the outside looking in, and all they needed was a group to help them come and see that the Lord is good. If you don't have this, I would ask you to consider joining a life group today. 
There's a link uh, that will pop up in this chat of our website or Facebook for those of you who are, who are still uncomfortable gathering person. We have groups that'll meet on Zoom. Uh, for those who are looking to meet in person, we have groups doing that too. So please don't let that keep you from signing up today. Come and seize an invitation by Jesus to be changed and to seek the truth. We think that happens best in life groups. Linda was a young woman who was traveling along the rugged highway of, from Alberta to the Yukon um, in the fall. And what she didn't know is that you don't try to travel white horse alone in a rundown Honda Civic. So she set off where only four-wheel drive vehicles go normally. The first evening, she found a room in the mountains uh, near a summit and asked for a 5 a.m. wake-up call so she could get an early start. She couldn't understand why the clerk looked surprised at that request, but as she woke up the next morning and saw the fog covering the mountains tops, uh, she then understood why. Uh, Not wanting to look foolish, she got up, got dressed, and went down to breakfast. Two truckers invited Linda to join them at their table, and being that the place was a little small, a little intimate, she felt uncomfortable saying no, so she sat with them. They asked, where are you headed? Uh, And she said, Whitehorse. In that Little Honda Civic, one of the truckers says, no way, the pass is too dangerous in weather like this. But Linda said confidently, well, I'm determined to try. The trucker replied, then I guess we're just gonna have to hug you. Linda drew back, there's no way I'm going to let you touch me. The trucker laughed and said, not like that. We'll put one truck in front of you and one in the rear. And that way we'll get you through the mountains. All that foggy morning, Linda followed the two red dots in front of her and had the reassurance of a big escort behind her as they made their way safely through the mountains. Sometimes when we're caught, uh, caught up in the fog of life, we need to be hugged. We need fellow Christians who know the way and can lead us safely ahead with others behind gently encouraging us along the way. We need that, but we also need to be that to each other. <laughs> 